This is Trinity Church of the Vale Valley, loving God, loving people, and living free. Hello, everyone. This is Pastor Ethan, and today is Sunday, November the 6th, 2022. Today's message is actually a recording of my sermon as I delivered it at our Edwards service, which is why I'm getting it out a little bit later in the day. If you have any feedback from me, for me, um, in terms of my sermon being pre-recorded so that it's there either Saturday evening or first thing Sunday morning, or um, my sermon being actually the one that I actually give here at Edwards, if you have a preference, have any feedback, I'd love to hear that from you. And so, um, yeah, we're jumping in. I encourage you to have a Bible, print out the notes um, if you'd like to, that we have on the website. And I, once again, thank you for joining with us. Friends, if you have a Bible with you, I encourage you to go to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be over the map a little bit, but principally right there in Colossians 1. Take me down just a little bit, Brian, if you would. Um, So I'm just going to jump right in. In Colossians chapter 1, going back to where we started, right off the bat, Paul gave this great statement of gratitude for the church. Right, He's looking at these, I want to call it young believers, but believers who were young in their faith, right? because the church was brand new. It was just starting to spread and grow um, throughout the area of Asia Asia Minor that we know as modern-day Turkey. Okay, He says he's thankful for how they love each other, how they know the fullness of God's grace. Right after that, we see Paul launch into one of his great pastoral prayers that we have in all the New Testament. Um, we, we have just a handful of these just like lengthy, evocative prayers that Paul prays. Two of them are in Ephesians, and one of them here is the second really big thing that we see in Colossians chapter 1. He prays that they would have wisdom and knowledge and understanding that the Spirit gives, that they would be strengthened in heart, And then he launches into what we spent the last two weeks really unpacking, which is this amazing high statement of the majesty, the divinity, the supremacy of who Jesus is. And the big takeaway that we saw from that is that not only is Jesus God, but in Jesus we see the fullness of God. If we want to ask who is God, when when, um, the disciples, when Philip said, you know, Jesus, show us the Father. That's all we want. Jesus said, Philip, don't you know? Didn't you get the memo, Philip? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That in Christ we see who God is. That Jesus is God and God is like Jesus. Okay? So the question I will ask, and this almost seems flippant, but it's really not. If Jesus is God and God is like Jesus, everything that we've seen thus far, so what? What does that mean beyond esoteric theological understanding? How how does that really take on life in the life that we're really in right now? Okay, If in Christ we do see the full, complete, present reality of God, because Jesus is God, he's the creator of the universe, in in him all things hold together, if that is true, what is the significance of that to you and to me? Okay? To each one of us, to everybody who by God's grace is a member of the community of faith. And friends, this is where Paul goes next. In fact, this is really what he's going to spend the rest of Colossians unpacking. Right? How this takes on profound relevance in our lives. And he begins with the three verses that we're looking at today. And this passage, I was thinking of it this week, is kind of like a magnifying glass. I don't know if any of you, was, were, when you were little kids, if you were, I think little kids to some degree, 
are just by nature little arsonists, right? You're looking for ways to set stuff on fire. And if you happen to get your hands on a magnifying glass, but you're outside boring holes in paper, cardboard, bugs, whatever you can. Right? What are you doing with that magnifying glass? You're taking the power of the sun and you're channeling it down to a single point. Right? And it's hot. Right? It's powerful. Colossians, what, what Paul is doing here in Colossians, it's like he's taking again, verses 15 through 20 that we just looked at. It's like the power of the Son, the majesty, the divinity of who Jesus is as God in Christ. And he's bringing that down to focus on who we are today in really three big ways. First of all, focusing in on what was true of us as believers, right? Speaking to believers here. What was true of us before we entered into life in Christ? What is true of us right now because we have life in Christ? And what is becoming true of us because we are alive in Christ? So with that, let me just read the whole passage. And then we're going to look at it in a little bit of detail. So we are in Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse um, 21. And Paul says, Now once, right in the past, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you, right? God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. For this is the gospel that you have heard, and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Okay. Let's look at that in some detail, because there's some really profound things here. He begins by talking about who we were. Once you were alienated from God, and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Okay, I don't know about you guys, but that brings some questions up for me. And if you happen to have read my first tracks I sent out a couple of days ago, you know where I'm going with this. Okay, does that sound like every non-believer that you know, right? Enemies of God in your mind, right? That's a picture of conscious rebellion against God. The word enmity, that we have enmity in our minds towards God, right? We're alienated from God, right? That's a very significant statement. And the last thing that he says is that this is, this is happening because of our evil deeds. So actively opposed, conscious, rebellious, right? God is my enemy and my life is principally characterized by evil actions. Does that describe every non-believer that you know? It does it for me, okay? So what do we do with this? Really, what is Paul getting at? We need to think about it. Because on one hand, this can lead us to a perspective that just everybody is desperately evil, right? In the way that we think about things being evil. Now, the truth is, some people are. And the human condition is actually this big spectrum of where we all land, you know, when we're just thinking about ourselves and our own nature and the things, our own rebellion, our own sin, things that we wrestle with. Right? It's, it's not, it's, we're not cookie cutters. We're all over the map on this, right? The reality is, though, that there are many, many people who do not consciously look to Christ, right? Do not would not say that they are a follower of Christ, and who do not view Scripture as being authoritative in their lives, and yet who are kind, compassionate, good, generous, moral people. 
You see, it's easy to hear Paul's language here and to develop a very negative, condemning attitude about the world around us, even about ourselves. Right? This idea that we're all just these horribly desperate sinners, and as Christians, we just happen to be forgiven. Right? The idea that we're horrible, desperate sinners who just happen to be forgiven is not the full message of the gospel. And we'll see that as we go on throughout Colossians. So, you know, one thing that helps us here is to look at this in the context of Paul's original writing. So he's writing in the first century, right? not quite the middle of the first century yet. And we'll actually write about smack dab in the middle of the first century to these believers in, again, in Asia Minor, uh, modern day Turkey. And if you go back and look about what we know of that part of the world at that time, simply put, it was brutal. It was horrible, right? This is under the boot of the Roman Empire, right? The thorough paganness of the Roman Empire. Life held very little value, less value for women and children, right? There was open idol worship and sexual exploitation was a part not only of religious, many of the religious systems of the day, but it was just normative in society. You know, in his letter that Paul would write to Titus, he describes first, first century life at this way. as a time when people were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. He says, when that's who we were, we lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Now, again, for honest, tragically, it's not hard to find that today. But it doesn't describe everyone. So we want to be careful that we don't miss the significance of what Paul is saying here because he is speaking to everyone. Okay? So this phrase, alienated from God, okay? this is a picture of the core reality of the human condition. Scripture teaches us that apart from Christ, we are spiritually dead. We are separated from God. In Ephesians 2, Paul says, as for you, and he's speaking to believers, says, as for you, you were separated from God in your sin. Right? You were dead. You were dead in your sins. This is the image that we see in the New Testament where our focus of mind is ourself. Right? With nothing else to guide us, we only look to ourselves, to our own strength, our own wisdom, our own resources in order to deal with life. And friends, a mind that is centered on self, by definition, is not looking to God and is not influenced by God. And this is what the New Testament describes as the flesh. It's been a while since I've explicitly taught on that here. I've done it a lot over the years. And as we get later into Colossians, we'll revisit this. But the flesh is this picture of how before we are brought back into a reconciled union with Christ in God, the only thing we have to live by is ourselves, right? And living by ourselves, with our, where we are the center of life, we're operating again out of our own wisdom, our own resources. We are the moral, we are our own moral arbiters, all we have to, to define our paths, again, is ourselves. And here's the thing, the flesh can look really, really good. But for some people, depending upon their bents, how they were raised, the circumstances that life has placed them in, their flesh can look very moral. The flesh can look very religious even. But it's still life apart from God. And it's still principally defined by pride. And it still desires its own control. Because this leads to the dynamic that Paul is putting his finger on here that we don't want to miss. When our minds are turned away from God and His goodness, we have no fetter to guide our behavior than our own predispositions. 
The word mind here isn't just talking about what we think either, just right, the things that we agree with, the things we think. It's talking about how we think, the processes by which we think. When we behave in a way, think of it this way, when we behave in a way that is counter to God, what does this lead to? Because we still have the God-given common moral understanding that all humanity has, right? Some C.S. Lewis, um, different writers have convincingly written about this, right? This common moral understanding that God has given to humanity. When we violate that, we recognize it. Right? We recognize that we have done something wrong. And so to get around that, we rationalize. We engage in self-justification. And this further damages whatever, whatever moral compass life may have given us. Um, one theologian put it this way. He said, you see, wrong thinking leads to vice. Right? Vice, that's a good old word. Like Miami vice, whatever. Wrong thinking leads to vice to wrong actions. And vice or wrong actions, sinful actions, leads to wrong thinking. And it's a cycle. And it continues to the point where even though we are not ignorant of the inherent God-given moral goodness that we recognize, we still ultimately find ourselves applauding evil. That's the end result. If you go read the second half of Romans chapter 1, Paul really at length describes what this looks like, what a culture looks like, what a person looks like when they objectively turn themselves against the goodness and the influence of God in their lives. Now, we're going to talk more about that when we get to chapter 3. But for now, Paul says this is who we were. But it's not who we are anymore. He goes on and says, but now he has reckoned, God, he, God, has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death. Stop there for now. But now who we are, friends, is we are people who are reconciled. That's a very important word. We are no longer alienated. We are no longer separated from God. We are redeemed. We are justified. These are all different words that we see in the New Testament. We have been ransomed. That's another one. By Christ's death and resurrection. We were dead, but in Christ we have been made alive. If you think of the imagery of the, the story of the prodigal son and, you know, the song Amazing Grace. We were blind, but now we see. We were lost, but now we are found. You know, the way here that Paul refers to how this happened, the cross, is really interesting. He talks about that we were reconciled by Christ's physical body through death. And this is more than just saying Christ died for you. Basically here, Paul is pointing to the totality of the incarnation, right? From Christ's birth, to his death and resurrection, to his ascension. The totality of the Christ event, the Word made flesh event on earth. That Christ came to live among us as a person in a limited physical body just like us. So being in nature man, being in nature God, but taking on fully the human condition, right? The human body... He can identify with us. And he understands us. This is really what Paul sums up here in Colossians. It's what he explains just a little more at length in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. Now, I've referenced this multiple times in the past, and I probably will again before we're done with Colossians. But this is where Paul says that Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, But rather, he made himself, what? You know what? Nothing. Nothing. He humbled himself by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. 
And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And church, that great act, right? What Christ accomplished through the cross is what we refer to as the atonement, right? If you're going to go right, do a little Bible study class on this, you're going to hear that word, the atonement. And the atonement is the concept that through the cross, through Christ's death and resurrection, every barrier between us and God has been removed. And in Christ, we have been made completely totally, comprehensively, and eternally right with God. And having said that, Paul now takes the next step and he says something. It would, it would be great if I could just say amen and we lead into communion right here. But that's not where he stops. And it's good that he doesn't. Because he says, if this has happened, having been made right with God, having been brought from death to life, this will bring about transformation in who we are and how we live. It will not be without goodness and fruit in our lives today, right now. And so we see Paul described who we were. He's like, who we are, reconciled to God. And now he walks us through the inevitable result of what we are becoming. Right? Again, he, this is basically going to be through the rest of the book of Colossians as well. Who we are and what we are becoming. So, verse 22 again. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. That's an amen right there. Okay, um, and I need a plant. Like I think in churches where I grew up in, they always had somebody whose job it was to make sure they threw out. Anyway, they probably like gave him a script. Amen. Here. And anyway, this is a profound statement that we would be before God, holy in His sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. So we need to think about what this means. So first of all, this idea of being holy. This is the idea, of course, of being set apart to God. That's the literal meaning of the word. In Christ, God is in the process. God is in the business. It's his work that's ongoing to be creating for himself a people to be his presence and his character and his nature in the midst of his creation. Right? In Christ, Paul says in, 1 Corinthians chapter, in 2 Corinthians 5, that we are Christ's ambassadors. Even more, we are, we are God's, we are Jesus' living presence. Right? We are his representatives in this world. The representatives of his grace, of his goodness, and of his love. This is where God is leading us. This is God's great purpose. Again in Titus, reference in Titus just a few times today, um, Paul puts it this way. This is actually Titus 2.14. He says, Jesus Christ, okay, you go, there's a context around this, of course, but he says, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager, that's a key word, eager to do what is good. We are his people. His life is now our life. His nature is now our nature. And we are eager to manifest him. We are eager, eager, eager to live out in the world that we are, in the midst of life as it really is, his goodness and his grace and his mercy and who he is, his love. So we were, he goes on, so we're set apart, we're holy. And then he says, without blemish. Um, that's also translated, I think the NASB says blameless. 
um, and free from accusation. You could, you could paraphrase that saying that there would be nothing in how we live, nothing in our actions, our choices, or our words that would violate our new nature in Christ. So that even though people may make accusations against us, or we may make accusations against one another, those accusations would fall away. Unless, of course, the accusation is that we are people who are loving, right, kind, patient, Joyful, hopeful, um, servant-hearted, generous, and good. All right, back to Titus one more time. He says, he says, this is the image of living so that, and this is the phrase, that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Right, that type of living. You know, guys, there's a word for that, and it's freedom. It's peace of mind, integrity of heart. You know, one of Mark Twain's many great quotes is, if you never lie, you never have to remember what you said. <laughs> right? You don't have to go through life looking over your shoulder, wondering what I'm going to cover up for this mistake that I made. That's goodness. That's a blessed life. But here's the thing. We know that we do lie. Right, right now, we aren't without blemish in our actions. Right, there are plenty of things in our lives that do violate the nature and the character of Christ. But friends, there doesn't have to be. Right? We, are not, we are no longer fated to that. In fact, Paul's whole emphasis here is that the inevitable result of reconciliation to God is that by God's work, the Spirit work, Spirit's work in our life, we will increasingly take on the nature and the character of God, the fruit of the Spirit, which means becoming like Jesus, one step at a time, right? one mistake at a time. I've referenced before how, you know, that um, walking by the Spirit, living by the Spirit, a great analogy for that is dancing. <laughs> you know, where Christ is the leader, you know, one little part of that particular example is um, kind of living life like the Texas two-step, where it's two steps forward and one step back. And sometimes life is like that. But all the while, God is our guide. We are one with Him. We are moving with Him. And He is leading us. He is growing us. He is shaping us more and more into His image, into the good of who He is. Uh, one of the most profound places, we see, how, how we see this described is in Hebrews chapter 10. In Hebrews 10, 11 through 14, this is another. If I, like my top 10 verses that I've probably referenced over the last 19 years, this one's probably on that list. And the, the writer of Hebrews here is speaking about the, um, the what's the word I'm looking for? Um, the hopelessness, ultimately, of the sacrificial system, right? where we become justified just through one sacrifice after another and after another and after another. And he says, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, the priest offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, referring to Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. That's a fancy way of saying Christ being ultimately victorious over all things. And then verse 14, for by one sacrifice, the cross, Christ has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. 
And that, that statement, we are being made holy, the word for that really is sanctification, that we are sanctified, that God is bringing about in our lives right now today, the already, the character and nature of who we already are in Christ. And friends, this will happen, and then here Paul throws down a really big if, a significant if. He says, this will happen if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. What does that mean? What does that mean? Okay, first, guys, we can't get around it. As much as I would have liked to try it, this is a contingency statement. The NASB renders this, if indeed we stay, we continue in our faith, established and firm, and do not move from our hope. Right? This is a picture of something that won't happen if something else doesn't happen. So what is that if referring back to? Okay, so first, what I humbly am going to assert that it does not mean. Okay? Some people would take, and over the years have taken the idea, that this contingency here is referring to our salvation itself. Right? The security of our oneness with Christ, of our salvation in Jesus. Right? This would mean that if at any point we are not established and firm, that that would cause us to no longer be reconciled. Right? That before God we would not be blameless, we would not be free from accusation, and this accusation of some degree of failure on our part would condemn us before God. Okay? Friends, against that stands, again, humbly stands the overwhelming message of the New Testament and the overwhelming message of the grace of God. You see, that would be the version of the gospel where the pressure is on and where God's love and mercy is contingent on our moral performance. Because that would not be good news. That would be bad news. But it's not the gospel. So what does it mean? Because we can't just say, well, that's not what it means, and move on. But this is very, very important. Two, two thoughts. Because first of all, God desires what we see here. It is God's purpose that we are people who are becoming holy, blameless, and free from accusation in our lives now. But this is not just a heaven when we die statement. This is a work that God is doing. And if... Friends, if we waver in our faith, right, if we do not continue in our faith, the language that Paul uses, if we give way to discouragement, if we lose heart, if we turn away, we will not experience the good of that transformation. Right? We will not live in the good of Christ's nature in our lives now, today. And this is tragic because this life matters. Now, But this doesn't mean that we don't sincerely wrestle with things. It doesn't mean that we may have real questions. Rather, this is a picture of saying to God, God, I'm reclaiming control. I'm going back to my wisdom, my strength, where I'm the center of my life, and you no longer have any say. God, life is once again all about me. Well, that's the image that we see here. But there's another observation that we have to consider. And friends, it's that a person may claim to be a disciple of Jesus, a disciple of Christ. But if there is no fruit, 
And if the predominant and consistent um, expression of a person's life is centered on self, is prideful, there's no authentic expression of the nature of Christ. Right? Christ is just an accessory, not our source. There's good reason to question whether or not our faith is authentic at all. But in contrast to this, Paul paints a picture of a believer who is established and firm. So let's talk about that. This is an architectural image that he gives us here. Established, right, that's an image of a foundation. Right, the content of our faith, the hope of the gospel. And then the structure itself, built upon the foundation, is what is firm. This is how we actually live out our faith. Strong, solid, that even if battered by the storms of life, will not collapse. It's, this is the picture of a believer holding firmly to Christ, choosing to trust, choosing to continually look to God, receiving hope and peace from God, even in the midst of life's questions and challenges and temptations right, and very real struggles. So we need to remember the context of what's going on in Colossae here. We talked about this when we first entered into the book. Right? There's a heresy that's going on in the church. There's this false teaching that's going on. And these believers are being tempted with this idea that says Jesus isn't enough. You need to do more. You need to add all these religious layers that are centered on you rather than on Christ. You see, friends, Paul here is not talking about people wrestling with questions and the very real struggles of life. This temptation was one toward pride, elitism, and self-righteousness. And in response to this, Paul says, No, stand firm. Look to Christ, for He is sufficient. He is your life. His grace and His nature is enough. He is your hope. Guys, and then Paul points us, as he brings this thought to a conclusion, he points us to the anchor of our faith. The ingredient that more than anything else will lead us to be established and firm. Established and firm in our faith. With lives increasingly that are set apart, right, blameless, and free from accusation. And that ingredient is hope. It is hope. It is the hope of the gospel. Right? The, the, this amazing New Testament truth, biblical truth, that when it comes down to us, God calls us to be people who hold on to hope. Who hold on to hope. There in verse 23, he says, So if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Because as I described it in my essay I wrote a couple of days ago, this is the hope that in our broken state, God in Christ came to us, became one of us, suffered death because of us, at our hands for us, and defeated the power that death held over us so that we may live. And if I'm sitting right there next to Gary, I'm looking back up at me thinking, okay, but what does that mean? <laughs> well, one thing it means is that right now, we are not alone. But this is the hope that we no longer have to perform for acceptance. The hope that the pressure is off. The hope that we are set free truly to be people who love. And friends, this is the promise that even though this life can be so unfair at times, it can be very unjust, 
We may have many questions. We may fail. We may even cry out to God saying, God, this doesn't make any sense. When it comes down to it, God invites us and calls us to be people, even at times by our fingernails, while somebody walks alongside us, helping to hold us up. We don't lose hope. You know, in my, my little article I wrote, I told the story, if you, if you read it, um, Lisa and I are sitting in the hotel lobby in Cleveland a couple of days ago. And it's the middle of the day, nobody's there, it's just us and the, the person working the desk. And this mom and a little boy come in. All right, I don't know, two, three years old, something like that. Running around, she grabs him, pulls him up to him and announces to all of us, this little guy has just been declared leukemia free. And we clap and we, we cheer. And she goes on to tell us that this is the first day they've been out of the hospital in three months. And the grandma and grandpa got him a hotel room here to come to to celebrate the night because the room was going to have a jacuzzi in it. Which caused me to think, my, my room doesn't have a jacuzzi in it. What's going on here? But questions came back in my mind. You know, will that little boy, in fact, live a life free from cancer? Now, I did a quick little Google, on, I asked the Google, and um, based on the little bit I gleaned, it seemed that this child's chances are very, very good. But they're not promised, they're not guaranteed. Pediatric leukemia can have reoccurrence, and when it does, it's much, much more difficult to deal with, right? Will this mother's hope and promise that she's clinging to, she was clinging to that child, will that, in fact, come to pass? I hope it does but I don't know that it will. Right? And I could have gone to her right then and said, let me show you something in the Bible and laid out for her the truth of Scripture that there's a source of hope that is greater and infallible and greater than the hope that she has for her child's health. But that, wouldn't taken, that would not have taken away the anguish that she had been through as her child suffered or the anguish that she would experience if her child suffers again. You know, we look at these truths and they're hard at times, and they're amazing at times. But they can bring forth many questions. Right? I had hoped that by now I wouldn't have so many questions and I'd have a lot more answers. Because the thing that I am learning, the thing that I am learning, after being a believer functionally my entire life, right, and being immersed in Scripture as a, as a teaching pastor for almost 20 years, is that as much as I love answers, as much as truth matters, and good biblical understanding is essential, our hope is not in answers. Our hope is in Jesus. Our hope is in the grace and the mercy and the love of Christ as we live it out in community with one another. And Paul goes on and he says, this gospel, this hope, this is the gospel we have heard. I just have to give one thought here, and then I'm going to bring this to a close. Um, we will figure out the heating, cooling situation here. Don't worry. <laughs> I know you're sweating because I am. All right, bear with me. Paul, Paul says, this is the gospel that you have heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. But he says to this brand new group of believers, this is the gospel that you have heard. Um, because it's very, very possible that there are many people who have heard a gospel that is not the gospel the Colossian church had heard. 
Right? Their gospel was very simple. Right? Parts of the New Testament hadn't even been written yet. Many, many things in church culture today that did not exist at all at that time. Right? Their gospel was fundamentally simple and fundamentally sound. Right? The grace of God, that in Christ, through faith in Him, we are forgiven. All right, people who have been brought from death to life. Right? Different ways we could say that, but very simple. You know, sometimes um, I'll be having a conversation with someone. You may have had this experience. And they'll say, Ethan, I just don't believe in God. Or maybe they grew up in the church. I just don't believe in God anymore. And if, if I'm able to do it, I, try, I like to say, well, tell me about this God you don't believe in. And so they go and they tell me all about the reasons they don't believe in God. And I say, well, this is really interesting because I don't believe in that God either. Right? Would you like to look at the Bible with me, at the New Testament with me, to see what we actually see about God? Right? The gospel, the source of hope into which we have been called. And friends, if we were to ask one of the most simple, beautiful ways of summing that gospel up, it's through what we're about to do now. And it's the observance and the celebration of communion. The great hope that because of what Christ did for us, we no longer are who we used to be. So remember, Jesus says, remember the cross, my sacrifice. And because of that, we have the great hope of who we are right now. We are people who have been reconciled to God. Every barrier between God and us has been removed. And because of the hope and the truth and the power of the new covenant that we have been brought into, right? The power of Christ in us. That's what we're about to see here. Maybe next week. I forget. Very, very soon. This amazing statement Paul makes. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That we are not fated to only living life out of our own resources. But we live life out of the resource of Christ. His love, His goodness, His spirit. So that one step at a time, we may increasingly become people who are holy, set apart to God, blameless, without blemish, and free from accusation. Mm